I'm wondering this morning what you might have done as an investment with your little Advent token that I gave out on Advent 1. And if you have a story to tell about this, I'd sure like to have you tell me the story at some point. Now some of you may be looking at this little Advent token, which is too small to see, the bigger one I have at home, and saying, oh, I forgot about that thing. Well, the good news is, as you know, in other traditions, the celebration of Christmas actually starts on Christmas Day and runs for 12 days. So you have still a couple more weeks. If you've forgotten, there's still an opportunity to make the kind of investment in Christmas that you may have forgotten to make in Advent. And I would encourage you to do that. Remembering is a complicated thing. I've been reading this week about various attempts to redefine or rewrite history so that the actual details of inappropriate actions could be hidden. I guess it's called historical negationism. Negationism. 200 years before Christ was born, there was an attempt by a group of militant Chinese to burn books and kill off all the scholars so that proper theories of government could be obliterated. And the thinking was, if we can just erase from the minds of the people how governments ought to run, this militant group could run the government any way they wanted. Didn't particularly work. But that was thousands of years ago. In our, in our own history, in the early 1900s, an attempt spearheaded by the Daughters of the Confederacy tried to redefine the reasons and causes of the Civil War, to pretend that slavery wasn't that big of an issue, but it was more about state rights. In the 1930s, Nazis burned books to purify the thinking of the people of Europe and to remove Jewish influences from the culture. I can remember in my own lifetime my shock and horror upon learning for the first time that we Americans had rounded up American citizens of Japanese descent and placed them in concentration camps during World War II. I heard this as an 11th grade student and I thought, how have I never heard about this before? My history books failed to mention it. And it wasn't until some high school teacher offered a special elective that I even knew anything like that had ever happened. Here the week before Christmas, I'm struggling with the kind of holiday I'm about to observe. I enter this period of self-loathing every year when I wonder if perhaps I'm participating in historical negation. And I'm wondering, is the reason that things seem so out of balance because my observance of Christmas no longer reflects the event it's supposed to call in mind? Perhaps we as a culture have created a holiday ideal that is so different from the truth of the original event that it rings hollow every year. I mean, think with me. It wouldn't make sense to honor Mother's Day by having all the mothers celebrate by having them cook their families their favorite meal without any help. 
it wouldn't make sense to honor Veterans Day by closing all the VA hospitals. It wouldn't make sense to honor Labor Day by adding an extra hour to the workday of all laborers for a week. That, none of those observances would make any sense. And so I'm wondering, is there some basic disconnect between what happened back then in Bethlehem and what we're doing today? And perhaps I have forgotten what the holiday is supposed to call to mind. Maybe I need to remember what really happened, or, or maybe I don't want to remember, preferring to embrace what the culture has created and labeled as Christmas. But this is what John says in chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. And I'll ask you once again to stand for the reading of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, God has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When J.B. Phillips translates the first part of this chapter, he says, at the beginning, God expressed himself. God expressed himself. God created the world as we know it. It's God's personal self-expression. He is the structure that holds it together. Just as the fingerprints of the sculptor remain all over the clay, Jesus' fingerprints remain on every aspect of the created order. And now, as a part of his created plan, Jesus is going to show himself. He's going to let us see what our creator is like. No one has ever seen God, John wrote, but God, the, the begotten one, read Jesus, has made him known. Jesus is coming to earth to let us know what God looks like. He is coming to bless us. He is coming to offer us restoration and forgiveness, to offer us a fresh start. His coming is the gift of Christmas. He is expressing himself once again, creating a whole new world order when he arrives in Bethlehem. So what was that Bethlehem event like? 
I think Philippians 2 cuts to the core of it. Philippians 2, 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Verse 7 is, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of himself. Now, if ever there is a concept that is foreign to us, it is self-emptying. We don't do that very well, even those of us who value the concept. Society in general thinks the notion is foolishness. We've already noted that John the Baptist is involved in this story, and if you think about who he was, he also exemplifies self-emptying. Lives in the desert, simple wardrobe, simple diet. If the method of the master is selflessness and self-emptying, if the master's plan for himself is self-emptying, is it possible that his plan for his disciples is the same? You know, there's quite a few troubling passages in the New Testament that seem to make the same case. He told the rich young ruler, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then come and follow me. He told those who sought him, anyone who wants to follow me must deny themselves and pick up their crosses. He told the masses on the mountainside, if someone requires of you your cloak, give him your tunic also. This isn't news to us. We've heard these passages before. Jesus didn't come to earth on a mission of self-fulfillment. He wasn't on a sightseeing tour in the Middle East hoping to return back to heaven with a bottle of water from the Jordan River or a cross carved out of olive oil, olive wood. That, that wasn't the plan. This amazing, this amazing being, the one who created all that we know, who sustains the universe by his powerful word, Jesus the Christ, divested himself of the throne, left heaven and his father, and became one of us. Self-emptying. Eugene Peterson said, the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. Wesley wrote, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. So how do you celebrate a grand self-emptying? How do you celebrate the most selfless act in all of human history? 
join a rat race and see how much you can consume in a 30-day period. No, I want a celebration that asks me to give something of myself, something that models Jesus' form of self-expression. He came to be with us. He moved into the neighborhood. He invested his life in us. I want something like that for my Christmas, something that will make a difference. I guess you could make the argument that by giving presents that you can't afford, you are self-emptying. I mean, at least your checkbook is self-emptying. But have we really taught our children anything when all the giving comes from us and all the receiving is indulged by them? Here's where the work of observing Christmas gets tough. How do, invite, how do I invite my children, my family, into a celebration of Christmas that is self-emptying? How do I help them learn what Christmas is all about? What task, what self-expression is needed to remember the things we are trying to remember? I mean, don't forget, we have holidays to help us remember things. We remember that our mothers loved us and have lived their lives for us. We remember that the veterans have fought and given their lives for our freedom. We remember that those who labored hard, who continue to work hard, have built our culture and society. We remember that Christ emptied himself and came to live with us so that we could know who God was and learn to follow his example. What would we have to do? What would you have to do to invite your family to join you? Well, what would you have to do if your holiday celebration is going to be a true expression, a true remembrance of what Jesus did? I think it would have to involve people, other people. I think it would require time. I think it would require giving more than just money. It would require some focus and some serious attention. It probably wouldn't come to you naturally. I mean, you'd have to get past yourself. You would even have to get past your desire to create a warm, fuzzy, made-for-Facebook kind of moment. Just maybe the only real thing you do to celebrate Christmas this year will be the self-giving, others-centered, loving and time-consuming project you decide to take up right now. It's not too late. We can celebrate Christmas easily for 12 days after Christmas, right? There's still time. If, if everything I've done so far to this point doesn't equate, there's still time for me to appropriately celebrate Christmas. Do you need specifics? The Holy Spirit will give them to you if you ask. There are needy folks everywhere. A quick Google search will validate for you that 
nearly half a million Connecticut residents struggle with hunger, and more than 127,000 children are food insecure, according to the Connecticut Food Bank. As the holidays approach, loneliness becomes the spirit of Christmas for all too many older folks. Nearly 60% of the more than 500 senior citizens, 70 or above, that were surveyed experienced some significant form of loneliness. Pain is not in short supply. Loneliness is abundant even in our churches. Verse 16 of the passage says, from the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. And I say, let's return the favor. Let's pick up the cloak of Jesus and try it on. Let's go from this place with the mission of Christ in our hearts. Fred Craddock once told this story. This is what Fred says. He said one night he was invited by God to spend a night in God's home with him. I thought, he said, what a great invitation, so I went. God took me home to his great house filled with many, many rooms. My room was large and luxurious. Classical music was playing, Mozart. Handel's Messiah, and the pillows were soft, the bed was covered with shimmering satin sheets, dreamy, wonderful. The fire danced in the fireplace, everything was perfect. But to my frustration, as the night went on, I couldn't sleep. The trouble was, the guy in the next room tossed and turned all night long. I could hear him moan and then pace, I knew he didn't get a wink of sleep all night long. Neither did I. The next morning, I met my host, and he asked me how I slept. I explained that someone in the next room had kept me awake most of the night. Oh, I'm sorry, he said. I didn't mean to keep you awake. That was you, Lord, I asked. What kept you awake? It was the cries of my children. They are always in my ear. Then, rather thoughtlessly, I said, is there something I can do? He turned, looked me full in the eye, and said, yes, as a matter of fact, there is. I'm sure there's something you can do. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you came for us, and we pray that your joy would fill us, that you would use us as we celebrate our delight in your coming. For we ask this in your name, amen. I would remind you today that the joy of Christmas is most appropriately reflected in the joy that we have in serving the one who loves us. And so my goal in inviting you to participate isn't to lay a ponderous responsibility on your shoulders, but just to remind you that there is joy in serving 
Jesus together. And we're called to that. And so as we go this morning, well, before we go, I'd like to invite us to sing one last carol together so that we can fully express ourselves in terms of what we believe about Jesus. Let's sing together. May the joy of the Lord be yours now and always. Merry Christmas.